I've sometimes said that giving a bored person a long list of things to do is like telling a drowning person to swim to shore. If they could, they would. They know there are things to do. That's not the problem. They can't want to do what's doable. That's the problem. Baby Yoakum here. It's been a while. Our podcast has been on a bit of a hiatus due to the vagaries of COVID life, but we're back. How you doing? It's good to see you. Have you been bored without the podcast? Have you been thinking about why you're bored? Today, we're going to talk about boredom. What causes boredom? What can you do to avoid boredom? And when it inevitably happens, what should you do to curb that feeling? And for that matter, what should you do about other people complaining of boredom? That pesky five-year-old kid here or that moody teenager over there. Today, we're joined by John Eastwood, clinical psychologist and associate professor at York University and co-author of the recently released book, Out of My Skull, The Psychology of Boredom. We dive deep on all things boring. If you get too excited by this podcast, as one is wont to do, well, John even shares some tricks he uses to get people bored out of their gourds in the laboratory. You can use that to simmer yourself down. Welcome to 30,000 Leagues. John Eastwood, welcome to the 30,000 Leagues podcast. Thank you. Very happy to be here. You study boredom. I want you to take me into one of your laboratories. What do you do to make people bored? So at York University, where I work with graduate students and undergraduate students, and we've had some postdocs working in the boredom lab over the years as well, we study boredom using a number of different methods. In one manipulation that we've used a number of times, we bring people into the lab and we tell them that, unfortunately, there was a glitch with some of our technology. And we tell them, usually you're going to have a choice about watching this video or that video, you know, the interesting video or the boring video. But unfortunately, our equipment's broken. You're going to have to watch this video that's uh, maybe a little less interesting. And then the video itself ends up being a very low-level video about teaching English to people who, where English is their second language. So it's a really low level, like teaching nouns, like this is a ball, this is a chair. And so this is for, you know, university level students as well beyond their comprehension. And it's, it's this video of this ridiculous mime as well, teaching these nouns to people. And then we also manipulate the passage of time. So we tell people that the video is, you know, going to be, let's say, uh, 20 minutes long, but in actual fact, it's, you know, longer than that. And so people, their sense that time is really dragging, oh, this is taking way longer than I thought it would. So we manipulate feeling of choice, the passage of time, and then the content of the video. And then we have various control conditions that are more engaging and more interesting where people have more control and where they feel that time is going by very quickly. And, you know, we also, just to, to put this out there, at the end of the study, we have some other manipulations to bring people back out of their boredom and to make sure that they're in a good mental state before they, they leave the lab. But it is a pretty excruciating kind of manipulation. And sometimes, you know, people are wearing these headphones and you can hear them huffing and puffing, like, oh, oh, or banging on the table or those kinds of things when they're in the lab, because it is a, it is a pretty frustrating or, or difficult kind of situation to be in for, you know, 20, 25 minutes. <laughs> what, are, what are some of the other boredom inducing tasks that you or other labs use? Uh, well, there's a whole suite of videos that people have used. So I talked about ours being this mime teaching English. 
There's another video that's another, a bunch of researchers have used where they have uh, a person who works in a paperclip factory talking about their job uh, in this really monotone kind of way. There's another one about two men hanging laundry on a, on a laundry Ooh, line, which is, yeah, really gripping. There's physical studies where people have to like do a peg turning task where they have to turn uh, a bunch of pegs, like a quarter rotation each time, and then go back and do it again and again and again, or people have to circle all the vowels in a long, you know, like a long entry from Wikipedia or reading the phone book. So there's a whole host of kinds of tasks. What they have in common is the task is not engaging the person's cognitive or mental ability. It's well below their cognitive ability. So they have unspent, unused cognitive resources that are not being engaged by the task. That's really the crux of what those manipulations have in common. They also have this idea of constraint. And we know that when you have to do things that you don't want to do, that don't engage your mind, that that's a surefire way to engender boredom in people. And I'll definitely ask some questions to probe the different yeah. mechanisms behind boredom. But so, so we're in the lab, you're making me watch videos of people holding laundry and I'm turning right. knobs. How do you actually know I'm bored? Yeah. So one of the things that our lab started with was trying to define the state of boredom. And, you know, boredom is a fascinating <laughs> thing. You know, I, philosophers have studied it, theologians, writers. It's been talked about and thought about for, for you know, a long time now. Social psychologists are a little later coming to the game, you know, like social psychologists or sociologists, clinical psychologists, cognitive psychologists haven't studied it as much. And one of the things that's really hampered the study of boredom is some kind of general universal agreed upon definition of what the state is. So one of the things that we tried to do in our lab is come up with a, a definition that all the different schools of thought could live with and say, yeah, I can, I can accept that that's a good definition of boredom. And then we had to come up with a self-report way of measuring it. So measuring emotions or feelings is a tricky thing, right? Because we can look at physiology. We can look at things like galvanic skin response, how much a person is sweating. We can look at heart rate. We could look at neuroimaging, look inside their brain. And those things all have an important role to play. But ultimately, we really have to depend on what the person is telling us because feelings are inherently a subjective state. And the only person who has access to that subjective state is the person in question. So we developed a self-report scale to measure boredom which asks a series of questions and people just report their level of boredom on these different questions. And uh, our scale is called the multidimensional state boredom scale that we developed. And what are some of the examples of questions in it? So boredom is this uncomfortable feeling of wanting, but being unable to engage in satisfying activities. And it's associated with the sense that time is dragging, difficulty focusing attention, feeling of, of whatever's at hand is pointless or lacks any value. And it's also associated with sort of a jumble of energy levels. And this is an interesting one and a little bit controversial too. So maybe we can unpack this. 
boredom seems to be associated with both restlessness and irritability on the one hand, but also kind of lethargy and low energy on the other hand. So boredom in our view, in my view anyway, is associated with kind of like oscillations back and forth between these two states. Some people prefer to define boredom as always and only involving low arousal states, lethargy, lack of energy. In our view, though, uh, it's important to be able to distinguish apathy from boredom. And I think apathy occurs when you lack desires, but you're quite content to lack desires. You have no desire to be doing anything. Tolstoy famously defined boredom as the desire for desires. So as I said, it's this, you want to be doing something, but you can't get engaged in anything, either for some reason in the environment or some reason in us. We're, we're prevented from being able to engage, but we want to engage. So it's a motivated state. And I think that's why it's associated with the restlessness and the agitation. But over the course of a boredom episode, a person is going to kind of, I think, oscillate between, you know, trying to find a solution to their problem and then like, ugh, you know, and then maybe like a giving up or maybe even trying to escape boredom through sleep, you know, or just say, well, I'm just going to go have a nap, you know. And in a sense, that's an extreme way of getting rid of the desire to be involved in some activity by just turning the lights off, you know, and saying, okay, I'm going to sleep. That's it. I'm done. Does the experience of boredom have a common trajectory? Are there you know, certain feelings that bubble up at minute one and then there's a crescendo and then some sort of after effect? What does that look like? Uh, that's, well, that's a great question and I can't answer it, but th that's on the cutting edge of where we're at with the boredom research, right? So some researchers have said, we really have to look at the time course of boredom. And that's something in our lab that we're just starting now to try to design some studies to look at kind of its time course, you know, how it waxes and wanes or how it evolves over an episode. So I can't answer that question, but you're, you're right on top of kind of where we're headed. So why do we get bored? Well, I think that boredom is this uncomfortable feeling of wanting, but being unable to become engaged in satisfying activity. And there are two core mechanisms, I would argue, happening in the mind of a bored person. The first mechanism we refer to as a desire bind. A bored person wants to do something, but doesn't want to do anything in particular. So they want to do something, but nothing at hand will scratch that itch. It doesn't fit with their desires. And so they're in that conflictual, that bind state. Okay. The second thing that's happening in the mind of a bored person, we call an unoccupied mind. The bored person has what you might call surplus cognitive ability, mental capacity that's not being engaged. So the desire bind, that first mechanism, as I said, Tolstoy referred to boredom as the desire for desires. And so that would be an example of the desire bind. Another writer, Saul Bellows, talked about boredom as the pain of unused power or unused potential. And so that would be the unoccupied mind portion. So the desire bind and the unoccupied mind are the two core things that are happening in the mind of a bored person. They're at the root of boredom. And then we can explore questions like, 
what personality characteristics lead someone to be caught in the desire bind and to have an unoccupied mind, or what environmental factors can give rise to those two core mechanisms as well. Because boredom can be caused by both things in the environment or things in us. And if you want, should I unpack what those things are, things in, in us and things in the environment? Let's do it. All right. So external causes of boredom. You could summarize these as sort of saying that the environment lacks a fit or we're disconnected from the environment when we're bored. And so there can be a lack of fit with the environment in, in a couple of ways, maybe four ways. First of all, lack of fit in terms of our values. If there's nothing to do that we value that's important to us, then we're not going to be able to muster up an actionable desire because whatever's at hand doesn't fit with our values. There's nothing that's, that's uh, meaningful to us that's available to do. The second thing would be uh, lack of fit around the need for variety or excitement. So situations that are monotonous, situations that lack variety, it's the same old, same old, that kind of environment is going to be, if it's a mismatch for our need for, for variety and excitement, then it's going to contribute to boredom. The third area for lack of fit would be ability. So let's say, you know, you're a mathematician. Let's say you're, you know, grad student studying mathematics and you're doing simple math problems. The simple math problems aren't going to be difficult enough to engage your mind. You're going to have unused cognitive potential left over. And so that situation is going to leave you bored. But let's say you don't have great mathematical ability, but you're being asked to do very complex math problems that are well beyond your ability. That can also contribute to boredom because what happens there is it's so far beyond what we're able to do. We can't get an intellectual foothold. It's like beyond our capacity, like right over our head. And because it goes over our head, then we disengage, right? We disengage. And now our cognitive ability is not being used because it's too far beyond us, right? And the final thing we've already touched on is this freedom. So if we're constrained, if we're kind of railroaded in some activity that we didn't freely choose, that's going to contribute to boredom as well. Uh, those would be the environmental contributors to boredom. Situations that lack value, that don't have variety or excitement, where they're beyond or below our ability levels or where we're constrained. Those would be some of the environmental factors that contribute to boredom. But as I said, you know, we're not blameless either, right? As people, we bring something to the table. Some of us are more prone to boredom than others. It's not just about the environment. It's, it's also about us. So you can break this down into five different kinds of categories. You can break it down into emotional factors, cognitive factors, self-control, biology, and motivation. So I'll just touch on each of these quickly. Emotion. This is an interesting one. So people who are afraid of their emotions or lack facility with their emotions or try to avoid them are more likely to be bored. And you might say, hmm, that's kind of weird. Why would that be the case? Well, it's important to recognize that emotions are like compass points that orient us in life towards things that are important or things we value. If we avoid our emotions 
or we can't read our compass or our compass is broken in some way, then it's like being adrift in the ocean without any orientation. We can't find our way. We can't find our way to meaningful activities that will engage us. So there's a little bit of research on this, not a lot, but a little bit of research showing that people who have gone through emotional trauma experience boredom later on as a consequence perhaps of that traumatic event. And the idea is they go through trauma and then as a way of coping or a sequelae of the trauma is they become emotionally numb. And that emotional numbing, now we're back to the broken compass. You can't find your way. So that's the first personality characteristic we know that contributes to boredom, these emotional factors. Cognition, the second one, people who have weak executive functioning ability, people who struggle to corral their attention, to focus their attention, to organize their mind are more likely to experience boredom. And the idea there is if boredom is a failure to engage your mind, then if you have a hard time organizing your thoughts and organizing or directing your attention, then it's, it's pretty straightforward about why people with these kinds of difficulties would experience more boredom. So ADHD, people with ADHD experience boredom more often. People with frontal lobe injuries to the front part of the brain that's responsible for organization and planning, they struggle with boredom more often as well. Self-control is another area. People who struggle to self-control or they have certain self-control styles, you might call it kind of like a paralysis by analysis. So some people are always looking to do the right thing, right? And so they ponder all the available options or they become preoccupied with considering pros and cons and they just never launch. It's like a failure to launch. They never get on into their activities. So one of the things that we often talk about is the importance of just do it, you know, like the Nike logo, you just get on with activities rather than looking for that perfect activity. So self-control and certain self-regulatory styles are more likely to be associated with boredom. Biology is another factor. Some people are just chronically under-energized. They have less get up and go. They're more, more sleepy or less aroused then they need excitement in order to focus their attention. So these are the adrenaline junkies, right? People that want to jump out of airplanes or bungee jump. So if you're high on that kind of adrenaline seeking, you're going to be more likely to experience boredom simply because, you know, most of life is kind of mundane. You can't jump out of planes 24-7. And so for many folks who have that high need for, for energy and excitement, they're going to struggle with boredom. And finally, motivational style matters here. So, you know, this is a bit of a simplification, but you could say that there are sort of two people, two kinds of people in the world, those that are motivated to maximize pleasure and those that are motivated to minimize pain. So let's say you're planning to go on a hike with your partner and you're a maximized pleasure kind of person. And you say, oh, it'll be great. We'll get out of the sun. We'll get some fresh air. We'll you know, have some time together, we can stop and have a picnic. And so you think about all the possibilities for pleasure, the possibilities for reward, the possibilities for positive. Whereas the minimized pain kind of person says, oh man, the traffic is really bad. We're going to get stuck in traffic. It's kind of cold today. When we get outside, I'm not going to be warm and 
what if we run into so many other people on the hike and I'm going to feel worried because of, you know, COVID and social distancing or something like that. So this is the kind of person that sees the problems and they're motivated to make choices that minimize pain. So if you're extreme on either of these, you're more likely to be bored. So the maximize pleasure kind of people, they're going to feel more bored because the world just isn't offering enough pleasure to them, isn't offering enough opportunities for that pleasure. Uh, they have to do the laundry, day-to-day -day activities have to get done. On the other hand, the minimized pain might be a little less obvious, but the minimized pain folks want to turtle into their protective shell to avoid problems. But by turtling in, they might stay safe, but now there's going to be fewer opportunities to engage in the world in satisfying activities, so they're more likely to be bored. So that was a bit of a whirlwind. I kind of went through it super quick, but I, I, I wanted to get the broad landscape there of the factors in the world and the factors in us that can lead us to struggle with the desire mind and the unoccupied mind, which is boredom. And there is boredom 101 and a five-minute capsule. That's great. Well, so now that our minds are, as you said, seated with these thoughts about the external and internal features, and I was, I was kind of processing that as some of the more uh, proximate causes or sort of inputs to whether you're feeling bored or not. And I wonder if before we dive into that, or even as a compass into diving into some of those features a little bit more, your thoughts on the ultimate purpose of boredom, like why do we get boredom? What is this signal doing for us? Yeah, well, if you think about it, all uncomfortable feelings that we might have sadness, anger, frustration. You could say in a sense, they serve a purpose, right? They are adaptive. You could even think about the example of physical pain. Physical pain doesn't feel good, but if we didn't experience pain, we would be in real trouble. Pain protects us from bodily harm. So pain tells us, whoa, stop what you're doing. Your body is being damaged. <laughs> Pay attention, you know, address this threat to your physical well-being. Sadness tells us that we're experiencing loss, perhaps, and that we need to uh, move towards others, perhaps, you know, access our vulnerability, look for connection. Anger might tell us that we're being threatened or we're being violated in some way and tells us to assert ourselves or to push back. So then, you know, the question is, what does boredom tell us? What's the signal of boredom? And I think that you could think about boredom as protecting us from stagnation, if I had to put it in a nutshell, right? So boredom is uncomfortable. It tells us right now, you're not engaging your mind. You're not utilizing your abilities. And you're not being agentic. So agentic is a big fancy word that basically I'm using to refer to this idea of being self-determined, having a plan and then following through on that plan. So you could think about a cork in the ocean that's being buffeted this way and that way by the waves, pushing it this way and that way. It doesn't have agency. You could think about a boat captain who's navigating a boat in the ocean, it's it too, the boat and the captain are going to be subject to the forces of nature, 
But the captain can make a plan and say, well, I wanna to go to shore, I wanna go north, I wanna go south, and then can act on that plan. And for now, I'll leave out of this kind of more thorny questions about free will and all of that kind of thing, but just say that agency refers to our capacity to be self-determined, to make a plan and then follow through on it. And boredom signals a crisis of agency. When we're bored, we're not being agentic. We're not being self-determined. Andreas Elpiduro, uh, a philosopher who writes about boredom, he talked about, I wish I could remember the exact quote because it's a great phrase, but basically he says, the world of a bored person is not that person's world. It's not the world of their projects, their purposes, their engagement. When you're bored, you're more passive, things are happening to you, and you're not creating a world out of your own intentions and desires, right? You're not a source of meaning making. You're now a more passive recipient of stimulation or activity. So boredom warns us that we're not using our capacities. We're not being agentic. And so the pain of boredom prevents us from persisting in stagnation. If we were not uncomfortable when our minds were disengaged, then we might persist in that state. And then we would never realize our potentials. We would never grow as individuals or as a species. We would never kind of advance. And so it's kind of like a parallel to curiosity, right? Like curiosity is like, oh, what's around that corner, right? What's over the horizon there? I want to go see what's on the other side of this valley. Curiosity pulls us to something, whereas boredom pushes us. Boredom says, whoa, where I am now sucks. <laughs> Let me look for something else, right? And so these two, curiosity and boredom, keep us exploring, keep us growing, keep us engaging and utilizing our mind and utilizing our abilities. And in a minute, I'm going to ask for your thoughts on how we can sort of satisfy or curb that boredom signal when it services on both the right. internal and external fronts. But to linger on the signal itself for just a minute, do people have differences? Or are there some who actually don't have a proper boredom signal, if you will? Like it would actually be a problem that they don't get bored. They should be getting bored. But in the same way, there are some folks who can't feel you know, pain and it causes them sorts of problems. Tell me a little bit yeah. about like, the, the sort of the, the, the tunement of people's boredom signal. Yeah, you know, that's, that, that is a good question that hasn't really been explored directly. I think that some people feel it, it, it's reasonable to wonder about whether or not some people might feel boredom more intensely, or they may feel bored, but then not be able to respond to it in an adaptive way. So that's a very important question that again is on the cusp or the leading edge of where boredom research is right now like who responds to boredom in this adaptive way and why and who respond responds to boredom in this maladaptive way and and why but i think your question was even more foundational than that right not not who, who responds but do some people just not feel bored right and right. and i don't think that that question has really been explored directly there, you might surmise with various neurological conditions, a kinetic mutism, there's various kinds of neurological conditions that are almost characterized by 
I'm not, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I may be getting some of these terms not precisely right here, but let's just put it simply as people who neurologically present with extreme apathy that have no get up and go at all to the point that they won't even take care of their bodily needs. There's just like a complete lack of initiative. And you might surmise that kind of neurological presentation could be characterized as like an extreme lack of boredom, right? Because it's this extreme apathy. What do we know about some descriptive stats on how often the average person feels bored in a day or anything to give a sense of how frequent it is? Ah, yeah. I wish I had some great figures on my fingertips for that. I don't because there aren't yet norming studies to look at, you know, what is an average level of boredom to really know when is it extreme or how often. But there was a study done where they did what's called an experience sampling study where they would beat people on their smartphone at various intervals and ask them, what are you feeling at this moment? And they might have various response options or it might be open-ended and they could say whatever emotion they were feeling. And boredom is a fairly common emotion, and, but I can't tell you exactly right now what those numbers are. I can tell you that we do know that boredom levels change depending on people's developmental stage or their age. We don't know a lot about boredom levels in young children, let's say below the age of 10. But we know that boredom levels from about age 10 to age 18 increase with sort of a peak around 16 to 18. And then boredom levels seem to drop from early adulthood down into midlife, you know, 50. And then they may start to increase again a little bit later in life. So there does seem to be some evidence about it changing over the course of a person's life. Why do you think that is? Yeah, well, again, we don't know for sure, but I think we could speculate a couple different ways we might explain that. We could explain it kind of from environmental factors or more psychological developmental factors. So in terms of environmental factors, if you think about adolescence, you know, adult, you know, adolescence, young adulthood, as people are approaching 18, let's say, this is a time when young adults are developing more desire for autonomy and freedom and self-determination, but they still have a lot of restrictions on them. They still have a lot of social limits They still maybe need parental permission for various activities or society hasn't given them yet the permission to do various things. Uh, They don't have the money to do things. So they're at this stage where it's like a peak kind of desire pressing for autonomy and independence, but kind of like a limited ability to make good on that desire. We also know that the front part of the brain, you might remember I talked about earlier people that struggle with executive functioning or people that struggle to control their attention are more likely to be bored. And we know that that front part of the brain doesn't fully mature until young adulthood. So you may see that may be another reason why we're seeing this kind of escalation until the front part of the brain, the frontal lobes are fully developed because there's this inability to sort of regulate one's cognition to be able to become engaged. 
So then why the drop at midlife? Well, you know, it's interesting. Midlife is, is perhaps a time when people are just really uh, busy with commitments and responsibilities. And there may just be this idea about so much they have to be doing. We also know that time passes differently at that stage of life, right? There's interesting research showing on how the subjective experience of time passing sort of speeds up. And so as we age, and so perhaps there's something there because boredom is associated with the slow passage of time. And then in in late life, we don't have a lot of data there at all. So I said, it may go up a little bit again, you know, as we age and, you know, 70, 65, 70, 80, but we don't have a lot of data about that demographic. But again, there, now we see almost like the flip side of what's happening in adolescence. Maybe people are, are, unwell or or they're un, not able physically to do the things they could do in the past they have limits or restrictions because of older age there might even be some weakening cognitive ability again which might make it harder to focus there's also this issue about socializing or interacting loneliness and boredom co-occur so if you if back to those experience sampling studies and if you buzz people and say what are you feeling right now and who are you with People are more likely to be bored if they're alone or if they're with strangers or, or, you know, less intimate acquaintances. And so in older age, there might be more of this isolation or loneliness. Close friends might even have passed on and there may be fewer opportunities to be active together with others. And so the exact relationship between boredom and loneliness is not clear, but we do know that they co-occur. And I know you said we don't have data for kids under 10, but I would not be doing my duty to fellow parents if I did not uh-huh. ask for you, or at least invite you to speculate on uh-huh. the young child complaining of boredom, despite having the whole world in front of him or her. What's up with that? Yeah, well, it's, it, it, it's an interesting question. And even in the way you, you, you pose the question, right, it's kind of like parents and adults, I think, get worked up about kids boredom it it pushes their buttons you know why are you bored when there's so much to do or oh my goodness i fail as a parent my kid is bored or oh my goodness i've let my kid rot on you know youtube or the ipad for an hour i feel guilty so there's a lot of social judgment around boredom which maybe we could talk more about that as we go here too i don't know but i find that fascinating that there's all this social work that's being done when we say something is boring or someone is boring or I'm bored, you know, like anyway, but back to your question. First of all, I would just say, don't freak out if your child is bored and don't become hard on yourself or hard on them. Know that boredom is an uncomfortable feeling like any other uncomfortable feeling and it's there to serve a purpose. And kids need help learning how to identify their emotions and then how to respond to them. So if a child comes home and they're feeling down or they're upset and you ask what happened, well, I got into a fight with my friend or they didn't share their toys or whatever, a a parent will help them label the feeling. Oh, you're feeling sad because you wanted to play or you're feeling hurt. The parent is creating a space for that, allowing it. And then moving to what can we do about it? Self-soothe, right? Or respond. So I think a similar process here. So don't deny the boredom. 
don't say it doesn't exist or don't teach them that it's a horrible thing. We got to get rid of it right away or that you're bad because you feel it. It's like, oh, well, it sounds like you're feeling kind of restless or you're, I don't we depend on their age, what would be appropriate words, right? So it sounds like you're feeling like you really want to do something, but nothing's holding your attention right now. You can't see what it is you want to do, eh? That you're sort of feeling bored. You're feeling bored right now. It doesn't feel very good. So it's sort of telling you that you need to find something that's going to really connect with you and use your abilities, something that will satisfy your need to be creative or to engage in the world. So let's see if we can figure this out together. Young kids, we might want to do some scaffolding because they might struggle to focus their attention because they're still, as I said, developing that part of the brain. So you might say, you know what? Last week, you really enjoyed playing this game or coloring or doing this craft. Why don't we try that out? get that off the shelf and then you get it down and maybe you start playing with the child with the activity. And then once they get rolling, then you can kind of pull back your scaffold and then they can run on their own. If it's an older child, I would suggest that you do less suggesting of activities to older children for a number of reasons. The one reason is that, you know, boredom is not a result of, a uh, few opportunities for action. Boredom is not an absence of possibility. Boredom is a disordered wanting. It's a disordered desiring because I want to do something, but I don't want to do anything at hand. I can't muster up an actionable desire in the current moment, but there's lots I could be doing. So, you know, I've, I've sometimes said that giving a bored person a long list of things to do is like telling a drowning person to swim to shore. You know, if they could, they would. They know there are things to do. That's not the problem. They can't want to do what's doable. That's the problem. So, and you coming along and saying, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Now we're back to constraint, right? And what a board person most needs is to reclaim that agency, that self-determination. So if you come along and start suggesting things, they may work in the short term, But in the long term, you've robbed them of an opportunity to develop their own kind of agency in this moment. So with older kids, I think I might kind of be empathic and sympathetic or compassionate to their situation and say, yeah, this is an uncomfortable feeling, eh? You know, so what I would encourage you to do is maybe really try to think about what you're most passionate about, what you care about, you know, what's meaningful to you. And see if you can think about something that would be aligned with those values. So you don't prescribe a specific activity, but you prescribe a way of thinking about the problematic space. And so maybe even to continue to go up the age range here, though. And right. One of the things I was really wanting to pivot to was after we've talked a lot about the, the boredom signal itself and how it's coming about is sort of what to do about it. You just gave some really helpful tips on, on small kids and teenagers, but right. as an adult or as an individual and you're feeling bored, what should one do about it adaptively, right? Positively. So again, you know, this is the leading edge of boredom research. You know, it's a question I get asked all the time and I have to kind of preface my response by saying, we don't have the data yet. Here are some of my informed (laughs) speculations based on what we do know. So I've got a few ideas about this. The first thing I do, I'd suggest, which I've already said, but stay calm, don't freak out, right? Um, and it's hard to become agentic. It's hard to engage the world on your terms 
when you're freaking out. So you might need to take some deep breaths. You might need to maybe burn off a little bit of energy, go for a little walk, maybe spend some time in nature, do something to sort of calm yourself and remind yourself that, look, this is just an uncomfortable feeling like any other uncomfortable feeling. It's here for a purpose. I just need to hear its message. So I need to treat it like a friend that's here to help me live a good life. It's not here to ruin things for me. I just have to learn how to listen to it. So stay calm and recognize that this might be this opportunity to find another gear. Like I said before, boredom invites you to become more self-determined. So often when we're super busy with the press of activities, you know, you have to do this, have to do that, have to be, you know, this activity by this time, pick the kids up from school and get them to their sports and then home for this meeting. And then you, there's no time to actually even stop to think about what it is you want to be doing. You're just on autopilot. So see this as an opportunity to find another gear, to find a self-determination gear. But that might be hard when the press of activities recedes, right? When there's less going on that you have to be doing. So stay calm. Think of this as an opportunity to find that self-determination gear. The second thing I'd say is transform the experience through acceptance. And let me try to unpack this because there's a lot here that could be misunderstood. By acceptance, I don't mean wallowing in boredom. I don't mean in like trying to foster boredom or staying in boredom. Nothing good comes of staying in the bored state. But if we resist things, you've heard that you've probably heard that famous saying that what you resist will persist. <laughs> if you get in this oppositional, confrontational fighting mode it's like being in quicksand that we just sink the way to climb out of quicksand is to increase your surface area to spread out and to acknowledge the situation to so accepting means acknowledge the reality of it and say yes i can live in a world where right now i am bored i'm not going to flee from or run from or fight this so Meditation might be one way that some people might find helpful to avoid that rejection, that hostility, that disdain, right? Because boredom is kind of like a disdain for the status quo. You're, you're almost a bit narcissistically or a bit arrogantly or in an entitled way. You're saying everything that is sucks, not good enough for me. Sorry, right? Like it's a rejection kind of stance. So try to back off from that disdain and try to be more accepting of where you're at in that moment. And don't run from the bad feeling, but try to move towards the solution. You want to avoid what I call remedy without cure. So if you're bored, you could pick up your iPad and start binge watching Netflix and you won't be bored anymore. But what you've done is you've treated yourself like a passive object to fill with compelling experience rather than an active agent to go out and make meaning in the world. So it's a short-term win to stimulate yourself into 
oblivion, right? It gets rid of boredom for sure in the short term, but in the long term, it further undercuts your ability to be self-determined and agentic. What you really want to do is say, no, I don't want to just stimulate the problem away. I want to pause and reflect and figure out who I am, what matters to me, how can I live in this moment in a way that's in line with my values. So avoid remedy without cure. And then, you know, self-reflect, consider your values and choose goals. Boredom is like this little pause from pause and engagement, pause and activity that creates a space for self-reflection because you're not so busy doing, you're like, oh, here I am. (laughs) I'm bored. All right. Who am I? What do I care about? What matters to me? So self, look for opportunities to self-reflect, consider your values. What's, what do I care about? What's important to me? And then you can look for goals that fulfill values. So some people might value friendship. Some people might value a self-development. So if you value friendship, a goal might be calling a friend. That's a very concrete goal that's in line with a value. Focus on possible reward, rewarding activities or possible rewards that flow from goals that are in line with your values that are determined through your self-reflection. Essentially here, you're looking for activities that flow from and give expression to your creativity, your curiosity, and your passion. And Don, I assume if you're, if you're fortunate, self-reflection and thinking about sort of larger goals and purpose might actually start to heat up a a particular desire. Yeah. If that doesn't happen, would you suggest still kind of, you know, picking something that you know is a goal and even if you're not like feeling it yet, just like doing it under the Uh, same thought that that becomes a bit of a scaffold, as you put it earlier, that if you just like grind at it for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, you might get engaged. Absolutely. That's the just do it kind of thing we talked about earlier. You don't want to get stuck in thinking and sit on the sidelines forever. So you can always adjust as you're going, right? You start some activity and there's something magical that happens when you commit to paying close attention to something. So Andy Warhol said that, you know, you have to let the, the, the boring thing suddenly thrill you. If you pay enough attention to something, you notice nuances and variety and texture and things that you were blind to before because you never gave it a second look. So first of all, it's like, just do it and see what happens and make adjustments on the fly. The other is commit to action, commit to engaging things. When you pay attention to something, it makes them, it it makes that thing interesting. The other idea is to decenter. So if you find yourself really stuck, agitated, restless, I can't figure out what to do. Decentering refers to sort of like, imagine you're like a fly on the wall looking at your emotions, your feelings and thoughts, rather than looking out from your thoughts and emotions. And when you create that little distance, it just cools things down a little bit. And it creates that agency again, because now you're over here now looking at yourself rather than being stuck in this kind of passive feeling of, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm stuck. Don't overthink it and commit to action 
And if all else fails, jump into something that's worked before and then check in in 20 minutes and see how you're doing. And those are recommendations that I kind of bucket as being sensitive to or even changing a lot of the external elements of boredom, reflecting on purpose, you're maybe changing the variety of things around you or trying to match things better with your ability or remove yeah. constraints. Yeah. Are there things on the internal side of the house, some of the emotion, mm-hmm. cognitive, mm-hmm. self-control, biological, mm-hmm. motivational, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking stuff like even just, you know, habits of healthy eating, exercise, is this something that you can kind of curate a better inner disposition to avoid or deal with boredom? Well, there's a little bit of research on meditation. So people who have more mindfulness ability, people who spend time meditating are less likely to be bored. And I think it speaks again to this decentering thing. They're able to foster kind of an accepting non-evaluative focus on what's happening in the moment. So they're strengthening both their attention capacity, but they're also strengthening their capacity to be emotionally in touch in a non-reactive way, whatever is happening in the moment. And as I said, it's that reactivity that's so problematic, right? So trying to develop that capacity, I think would be very important. I think that reflecting on what your larger purpose in life is can be helpful too. We know there's research studying that research showing that if you make people temporarily feel that their life lacks meaning and purpose, they experience more boredom later on. And so the idea is that reflecting on like, or cultivating kind of a sense of a meaningful, purposeful life, I think is another internal change that we can make that is helpful. There's not any research that I'm aware of directly on things like exercise and spending time in nature. But what we do know is how those things help attention and how they help emotion regulation. So because they help attention and emotion regulation, I would speculate that they would help with boredom as well. What's the relationship between curiosity and boredom? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, when you're curious, you're being drawn to something. So you want to know more about a topic. And so to be interested in something or to be curious about something, you have to have already been in contact with that thing. And you might've been in contact with it because somebody put it in front of you, (laughs) you know, or you stumbled across it serendipitously or a parent earlier in life said, you know what, you should really join the chess club or take up karate or something. And we start doing it. And then the more we do it, our interest develops, right. And our curiosity develops. So interest and curiosity kind of pull us towards some activity or thing Whereas I would talk about boredom as being a pre-interest mechanism or a push. So boredom is an uncomfortable feeling of, I don't like being where I am right now. This doesn't feel good, but it doesn't push us towards anything in particular. It just says, don't stay here. Whereas curiosity and interest say, come here. The other thing coming through my mind now is how removing options might actually help you organize your desires more. I mean, some of the examples you're even given are kind of having fewer things that you're going deeper on and sort of developing expertise or interest in. Whereas if you just have an endless 
menu and buffet of a thousand things you could look at or a million toys in the kid's closet. It's like, ah, it's so much stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. What's even orient on. Absolutely. In fact, there was a very recent study that showed that where they made people bored in the lab and one group, they had lots of toys that they could play with. I mean, they weren't literal toys, but different things they could engage with. Right. These were young adults or another situation where there wasn't those temptations and if you had more temptations then people were more bored and it's interesting. It's like the difference between this is a little different than boredom, but you might've heard about what they call maximizers versus sufficers. Have you heard of this concept, right? Well, you go to the grocery store to buy breakfast cereal and there's like 700 different kinds of cereal to buy. People think lots of choice will make you happier doesn't work that way. More choice, and then you're less satisfied with what you do choose. And maximizers are always looking for the best choice, right? Sufficer says, I need a cereal that doesn't have rice, has little sugar and high fiber, you know, or maybe they boil it down to, I don't care. Any cereal is good enough. Sufficer just says, this meets my needs and then stop searching. Whereas a maximizer keeps looking for the best option. So yeah, the, the, the choice is a tricky thing, right? We, you're, you're bang on, I think, that we often think more choice always leads to better outcomes or happier people, but that's not the case. Why'd you get into this topic? You could say that what I'm most interested in right now is the feeling of thinking, We know that emotions have feelings. When you're angry, you feel that, you know, that heat rising in us or that activation ready to lash out or the churning in our stomach. But what we don't often recognize is that thinking also has feelings. So think about that mental strain when you're trying to solve a difficult problem, like strain of mental effort. That's a feeling, right? Or think about that aha moment when you see a solution or think about that feeling of flow or or fluency when you're reading something that's really well organized and well written and it's just like clicking boom 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 so boredom is a feeling of thinking boredom is a feeling that is associated with a mind that's not engaged that's not using its abilities right and so i'm very fascinated in how feeling of thinking is an inextricable part of thinking. The feelings of thinking regulate thought process. And basically it's kind of like a carrot and stick routine, right? Thinking that feels good, we keep doing. Thinking that feels bad, we stop doing. So often when we study thinking, people look at it in a very non- affective way. They just think about intellectual ability. What's your IQ? What's your working memory capacity? But what they're failing to look at is how any kind of thinking will engender feelings. And those feelings are going to regulate whether or not the person persists or continues. And I'm very interested in thinking about certain kinds of what historically have been thought of more as thinking problems, like ADHD, as being more rooted in particular kinds of feeling around thinking. People with ADHD 
might perform equally well on a task as someone without ADHD, but they experience greater strain of mental effort Hmm. or greater boredom. So you could think about here, I'm kind of going well beyond where we're at in our data, but just where, where my head is going, right? Long-term vision is you could think about ADHD as kind of being effort or boredom intolerance. I was also interested in boredom because, you know, in my clinical work, you know, you're dealing with maybe, you know, stereotypically young adult men living in their mom and dad's basement, playing too many video games, you know, maybe failure to launch kind of stereotype who chief complaint is boredom, unremitting chronic boredom. Are they depressed? Well, they're not technically clinically depressed. They don't meet the diagnostic criteria for depression. So then I started thinking, well, okay, is boredom different from depression? Does Mm -hmm. boredom lead to depression? How are they related? How are they similar? So this was around 2001. And at the time I was working in a hospital and so I started, I started this whole project on boredom 2000, 2001, by actually interviewing chronically depressed people in a hospital setting inpatients to ask them about their experience of boredom and what they thought about boredom. And this was a qualitative study, you know, so it doesn't have the big sample size. It wasn't experimental, but they talked about boredom being something that frightened them because it was like a signal to them that a depressive episode might be coming. Hmm. And the idea that, that I have about this is that when you're bored, you're disengaged from activity. You're disengaged from satisfying activity in the world. And if you're disengaged from satisfying activity in the world and you have a predisposition towards depression, depressogenic, uh, ruminative, self-critical thought processes, then that would be perhaps a real risk factor, right? Because if you disengage, now you're going to maybe be critical. Well, why can't I do this? Or why can't I be involved in this activity? You might be angry or irritable, or you might just start to engage in negative self-rumination, right? And there is some studies showing that boredom at time one predicts depression at time two. So we don't know exactly why they're related, but that would be one idea I have. The other emotional or or clinical condition that's interesting here is anger and hostility. So boredom at time one is related to anger and hostility at time two. And if you think about boredom as being this crisis of agency, like when you're bored, it's essentially a state of not being able to form a plan, make an intention, and then follow through on that act on the world. It's almost like boring situations objectify us. A boring situation is objectifying in that it creates no opportunity for you as an individual to engage in it in your own particular way. Kind of what you see is what you get. And there's no opportunity for you to make meaning. So you can think about the difference between like great art versus advertisement. Advertisement forces a pre-packaged message on the viewer that you don't get to interpret. You don't get to participate in the meaning-making process. It just hits you there. 
Whereas art invites you to engage in it and invites you to participate in the process of making meaning. So I would say boring situations objectify us. And if we're objectified in this way, it's kind of like dehumanizing, right? And that's, I think, one reason why boredom might lead to hostility and anger, because we want to be agentic. We want to be self-determined. The other, the flip side of that, a researcher, Van Tilburg is his name from, he's in the UK now. He was in Ireland. He's done some interesting work on boredom and hostility or boredom and outgroup denigration. So you bring people into the lab, you make them bored. And then, so this was done in Ireland, right? And so these were all Irish participants. So they made them bored. And then they gave them little vignettes about a English person who had beaten up an Irish person. And then they had to assign a punishment to the English perpetrator of this crime. Or they flipped it where it was an Irish person, a member of their in-group, who was the perpetrator who had beat up an Englishman. And making people bored resulted in giving out more hostile punishments in this scenario study to out-group members. And one of the things that we know is that when our sense of meaning and purpose is threatened, we circle the wagons around our people and we reject outsiders. And boredom is in many ways this kind of meaning threat, right? When we're bored, the situation lacks meaning and purpose for us. What are the things coming down the research pipeline that you're most excited about that we should be monitoring the presses for? (laughs) Well, one of the things we're starting to try to look at interventions for boredom. So all the stuff we were just talking about. So we're starting to develop little laboratory-based things that people can do either before they go into a boredom manipulation to see if that helps them buffers them so they don't experience as much boredom when when it occurs or after they're bored then we give them something to do to regulate that feeling and we see does that then help them respond more adaptively so that's one of the uh, things I'm excited about exploring Um, trying to figure out you know who goes to the dark side and who goes to the light side you know so boredom is the signal that's neither good nor bad but the key is how we respond to it that is the central question for whether or not is a, whether or not boredom is a force for good or ill depends on our response. And the question is, well, who responds positively and negatively? So I think that's a really interesting question that's on the cutting edge right now. I think something that you raised earlier about the dynamic changes in boredom over a boredom episode, I think that's another exciting area to explore that will help resolve some of the controversy around the question is boredom associated with high arousal negative emotion or low arousal negative emotion or both? I think clearer evidence about some of boredom's consequences would be helpful. So, you know, there's some evidence to suggest that when you make people bored, they eat more, they engage in more risk-taking behavior, they make more absent-minded errors, you know, which is a problem if you're an air traffic controller, for example. There's decent evidence on those things. There's less evidence around things like substance use, addictive behavior, like gambling. There's, or, or 
anger and depression being consequences or outcomes of boredom. Those are things that need better evidence. We need to explore more fully. And then we need to figure out why, like what's the mediating mechanism, right? So boredom causes something and then the person because of their personality, they respond or they orient a certain way to that boredom and then they overeat. So trying to like, you know, connect the dots and get that whole pathway, you know, or why might others say, well, when I'm bored, it really spurs me to find creative activities or to make me more creative. And what we would suggest is that being bored in the moment doesn't make you creative, but boredom might be that push that then leads us to engage the world and then to come up with creative outcomes, right? So I think those are some of the most exciting areas that the boredom researchers are trying to figure out. And for those who want to stay engaged and learn more, obviously they should read your book, Out of My Skull, The Psychology of Boredom. Do you have any other recommendations for how they can follow you or if there was one or other two other things to read or listen to what it would be? My co-author and I have a Psychology Today blog, which we've just started, where we're trying to monthly blog on kind of topical things that are coming up related to boredom. So we did one, I think, more recently on politics and boredom. And we're going to be exploring kind of relational boredom coming up as people are coming into the holiday season and being stuck indoors with those same old faces (laughs) that they've seen (laughs) day in, day out for quite a while. So that's another way that people could follow us. We are on Twitter as well at the Boredom Lab. And we've slowed down a little bit there, but trying to get back at tweeting out recent boredom research as well. John Eastwood, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much. My pleasure. I love talking about the endlessly fascinating topic of boredom. It's uh, <laughs> There's so much to say about it. So thank you for your interest. Thanks for taking a deep dive with 30,000 Leagues. This podcast was hosted by David Yoakum, Director of the Policy Lab at Brown University and produced by Kelly Harris-Crawley and David Yoakum. You can find more conversations at 30,000leagues.com or by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay safe, keep calm, and narwhal on. We're going to talk about all things boring. No, 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 that's boring. Let's see. Um, Boring. 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 Snooze. Oh, oh, boring. Boring. (laughs) This is ridiculous.